0: Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at Paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic.
1: Zach you here, right? Yeah, yeah, can you hear me? And Zach is out in Phoenix, and so we're we're doing this stuff remote and First of all, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I am, you know, been sort of quoting some of your work, <laughs> you know, work at times, particularly the stuff you've done on on protein overfeeding and stuff. I think it's fascinating. And I sure just just for my edification, what is your sort of area of expertise? Be, you know, beyond these protein studies, what is kind of what have you been studying over the years?
2: Yeah, sort of. Uh, my broad base. If you look at my scientific training. It ranges from my initial doctoral work was actually in skeletal muscle hypertrophy and hyperplasia. Um, I followed that up with some work looking at androgen physiology. Um, I was actually into anabolic steroid research for a long time. I quit that for various reasons. And then I transitioned over more towards sports nutrition, sports supplements as it applies to uh, body composition and athletic performance. So I have sort of run the gamut of all these different things related to exercise science and Seems like where I'm settling is sports nutrition, but I'm starting to play around with some of the things in sports science as it relates to brain function. So, um, you know, you sort of follow the path, whatever's interesting, you sort of go down that path. And that's sort of what I do.
1: <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Well, Zach, you know, Zach has definitely got an interest in sports nutrition. You know, I don't know if you were, Zach's got the 100. 100- Hundred mile world record for uh, you know trail running and and actually uh, you've got them and and flat track now right Zach you've got both world records I I think
0: I have um, the American record for just the outright hundred mile um, and then the twelve hour world record which is just distance running or running twelve hours which kind of I kind of double dipped on that one where I got one of the hundred mile times and just kept going for a little bit to get to twelve hours so (laughs) um, yeah that's kind of where my My interests are the endurance side of things and I guess the freakishly long endurance stuff more or less.
2: (laughs) Hey, you know, actually, sorry for the sidebar. Um, uh, A few colleagues of mine actually over in England, we're actually writing a it's uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the ISSN position stands, but we've written several position stands, some on protein, creatine, all sorts of different topics. But we're actually in the middle of writing one for ultra endurance uh, nutrition. Oh, cool. And, and the challenge of that is it's kind of hard to find people who do stuff like that. <laughs> so <laughs> not many people are willing to put their bodies through that. And, and they wanted to interview at least a few people who've done some of these ultra events. Um, and you might actually be a good person to talk to. So maybe offline uh, sometime down the road, send me an email and I can hook you up with those guys. And they might want to just ask you a few questions about, you know, basically, what do you eat? You know, yeah, when you're doing yeah. all this stuff.
0: That'd be great. I'd love to help out. And you know, I like like you mentioned. I remember I participated in the faster study back in 2014, and we did the kind of like centerpiece of that study was this three-hour treadmill session. And uh, I was talking to Dr. Volick about it, and he said I really would have liked to have a five-hour treadmill session, but he couldn't get five hours past like the uh, the IRB tests. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's like maybe down the road or another way to kind of get around if they could somehow manage to do at least a semblance of those types of tests in the field, when you're out, you're out there running and wherever environment you're at would be ideal, right. I suppose. Cause that's a little closer to reality than a treadmill in the basement of a exercise phys lab. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
2: I, I believe. Yeah. So, but yeah, that would be really cool stuff for us to you Know before we publish this paper, it'd be nice to get, you know because they're going to interview some ultra endurance guys, I think, out in England. Um, but it'll be like a nice sidebar section of the manuscript.
1: Cool, yeah. Hey, Jose, let me just you know because I, I referenced you know some of your work on these protein feeding studies. You know, I, I know there was a study that you have at least, at least one year data on, it, and maybe maybe you guys have two year data on now. I know mm-hmm. you athletes that were eating what would be considered a tremendous amount of uh, protein. I think it was, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was like four grams per kilogram up to that amount. And, you know, it, it was interesting that they didn't gain body fat, even though despite what, we, what some people would argue a caloric excess. And also interestingly, they didn't have seem to suffer from any, you know, renal or liver injury. Can you comment a little bit on that stuff?
2: Yeah, the uh, we actually our initial study was when we looked at that one year data was mainly male recreational bodybuilders. And visually they all look in great shape so it's your typical bodybuilder they're not competing for money they're just doing it because they love doing it um and also they're already eating a lot of protein so asking them to eat more isn't really an issue because it's free protein right they're like hey i'll come free protein you get to measure me every six months or whatever so the initial one-year data and i yeah, here's what's sort of interesting none of it was really surprising <laughs> at least to us in the sports science but when you sort of leave the lab, there's still a lot of people who seemed to not believe that eating that volume or that amount of protein um, daily for a year, you know, that it didn't cause any harmful side effects. And so there's the naysayers who say, well, a year's not long enough. You need to do it longer. And I'm thinking, do these people have any idea how hard it is to do any of these studies? I mean, much less four weeks. You know, a year is really crazy. Trying to follow up with these people is impossible. And But we attempted, and we were able to follow up with with five of the guys who were the most dedicated uh, for another year, so we have two-year data on them. And, yeah, there's guys, I mean, on average, they're consuming three to four grams per kilo per day. This is over a two-year period. And nothing happens. I mean, in terms of health variables, nothing happens in kidney function, liver function, which isn't surprising. I mean, so uh, there's a part of me, I'll be honest, I sort of have these conversations with myself saying, I'm really wasting my time doing this because why should anything happen? But then I think, oh, my God, there's all these people out there who keep saying, oh, my God, kidneys will be harmed. You know, liver function will be harmed. And, And there's this weird disconnect. It's like, are there just a few of us who understand basic physiology, then everyone else just makes stuff up? I mean, I guess the answer is yes. They just make stuff up.
1: Well, well, let me um, ask. Let me ask to interrupt you because you say, "Why would you know?" It's not even surprising, but but you you are right. Most of the people, and even many people in the medical community, would be surprised by that fact. But what what physiology are you referring to? You say when it's not surprising at all to me.
2: Well, actually, uh, here's what's interesting because uh, um, I mean I, I I always say, "Hey," I, I harken back to my undergrad days. One of my favorite classes was an evolutionary biology class, and I think a lot of the basic biology, um, at least with modern uh, because there's so much specialization now. A lot of people have sort of forgotten basic biology, and I think part of that is evolution. And, you know, I always pose this question in my class whenever I teach a seminar. I said, think about prehistoric humans. They were basically nomadic till about 10,000 years ago. So they're, they're basically looking for food every day. It's like, I need to eat, I need to eat. You can't subsist on figs and berries. It's just not enough calories. So where do humans get calories from? The most calorically dense food is from animals. It's the meat and the organs, which is basically protein and fat. Um, so imagine you literally have not consumed any food or not many calories for a day, maybe two days, and you finally hunted down an animal. You're going to be hungry as hell. So think about this. <laughs> imagine if, one, there was a limit to how much protein you could eat in one sitting. Here you are. You haven't eaten for 24 hours. And, and so your caveman buddy's telling you, you know what? 30 grams, that's all you can have. And then you got to wait, you know, four <laughs> hours. They get 30 more grams. I'm thinking it's got to be the stupidest thing i've ever heard you'd you starve to death and then the other thing is again since humans went through you know starvation and you know feast or famine feast or famine when they finally got food they probably did gorge just because you're so damn hungry and if that was the case that it would be harmful to your kidneys we would have died off a long time ago so I think part of it is I look at this through from an evolution lens, um, which a lot of people don't, but it's one way I look at it. And then also, just from the standpoint, you're still consuming food. <laughs> I mean, when did eating a lot of food become so deleterious? And I mean, I've, you know, besides the fact that excess calories can contribute to obesity, et cetera, et cetera, but in terms of just gorging every now and then, I mean, let's face it, humans basically intermittently fasted when they didn't want to intermittently fast. I mean, who wants to not eat for a day? Um, so I think there's two ways to look at it, evolution, and then just looking at data. The data is just not there to show that it causes harm to otherwise healthy exercising people.
0: Jose, do you know like where the original kind of fear-mongering behind protein began? Like where is that, that evidence, so to speak, coming from?
2: Yeah, it, I think it stems from some of the original, uh, uh, it stems from clinical medicine looking at Uh, patients with chronic kidney disease, uh, CKD, and showing that, you know, because your kidneys are compromised and part of the process of breaking down protein is you produce urea and urea has to be eliminated by the kidneys. I think that's really where it stems from. But uh, even when you look at the CKD data, it's kind of interesting because if you're in a state where your kidneys are failing, there's a whole host of other issues that are much more critical than worrying about whether you're eating meat or drinking milk. So, you know... and this is what's funny. I, I can't mention the year because people would know who I'm talking about, but I submitted an IRB. So I'm submitting a study. This is way back when looking at high protein diets in people. And one of the people on the IRB, a physician said, basically brought that up. Like, well, there's got to be evidence that all this protein is bad for your kidneys, you know, because he, he actually sent me a study on chronic kidney disease patients. <laughs> and I responded by saying, okay. Imagine this, someone has a heart attack, goes to the hospital, is in ICU, gets operated on, is in, and now is recovering, right? If you told them to get up and run two miles, what do you think would happen? He'd probably die. He'd have a heart attack. But if you told someone who's a trained runner to get up and run two miles, to them it's like sleepwalking. It's nothing. So, so is, does running kill you? Oh, well, it might if you're a cardiac patient who hasn't recovered. And that's the analogy I use with, with protein. It's like whoever... What chronic kidney disease patient is gorging on protein? Uh, nobody, and I think one of the, um, one of the details that 's missed is that the only group of people that purposefully consume a high protein diet are athletes that 's the only group no one else does it and it, t- it tends to be more the strength power athletes than the endurance athletes, although some endurance athletes, just by the sheer volume of calories they consume they 're eating a lot of protein. Strength power athletes consume protein because purposefully that's what they're trying to do so for normal healthy people it just doesn't make any sense that it would cause harm it, it, obviously if you're in a diseased state there's a whole host of other things that are going on
1: do you see uh you know jose because you know back on this evolutionary argument and i and i totally am on board with that you know i think it makes sense uh you know it, it doesn't make sense that we we're running around with tupperware containers consuming 30 grams <laughs> at four hours i mean <laughs> And you know we have historical accounts of people you know feasting on eight ten pounds of meat at a time. Lewis and Clark expedition, you know M- Mongolians eating ten pounds in a sitting. We've got a guest coming on tomorrow. Tomorrow who's a competitive eater named Molly Schuyler. She's a little bit of gal. She's put down twenty two pounds of meat in one sitting. You know and, and didn't die. Whoa! So I mean, that, I mean that that's some interesting physiology. I want to ask her about that. But I mean, there is some people that will say, and I think rightfully so, that you know protein consumed you know, in nature is usually comes with a source of fat with that. Uh, And there's some people say that if you eat a higher percentage of protein and and that, that percentage may vary. I mean, some people say 35%, some people say 50% or more. Do you feel that, you know, if you ate a diet that was 80% protein chronically that, that you might have issues with that perhaps?
2: Huh? That's a good question. Um, I know none of our subjects, even the guy who was the highest, he was about 5.5 grams per kilo. Um, he still ate carbs, although he was probably up there about 60, 60 to 70% protein. I don't think he ever got up to 80 because again, he was getting a lot of fat with his diet. Uh, but would that pose a problem? I mean, the, the, the honest answer to that is I don't know. I don't know many people who could sustain that kind of diet, but uh, if that's all you're eating, I guess that means you're eating meat, you're eating some fat, and you're not eating much of anything else except maybe roots, <laughs> low-carb stuff. Um, uh, I mean, it, it would one, I think it would be hard to be in a calorie surplus eating like that. So if that's the case, you'd probably be a lean individual to begin with. So you're eliminating probably one of the bis- biggest risk factors for chronic disease, and that's just being overweight,
1: yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, you know, people kind of lose sight of the big picture when, when we realize what, what, yeah. what makes us healthy. Let me ask you, you, know, you, you, you talked about you know, your study, and there's a lot of people will say that, um, well, how do you think that the role of anabolic steroids impacts protein metabolism and our capacity to eat more? Do you need to be on steroids to eat this much protein? You know, do you need to be resistance training to do that? What are your thoughts regarding that?
2: Well, in terms of uh, the use of androgens or anabolic steroids, one you don't if you look at the data as you're well aware you don't even have to train to increase uh, muscle cross sectional area i mean the earlier the early work of bassin or bassin he did it back in the early in the mid 90s showed that people who don't train normal healthy guys who don't train and take testosterone and they, they still gain muscle mass now that does how does that apply to the well trained athlete I think it's almost two ways to look at this. One, if you're taking anabolic steroids, in a way, it eliminates the need to eat a lot of food because it's basically a partitioning agent. It'll shift everything to developing skeletal muscle mass. On the flip side of that, if you're taking anabolic steroids but also eating a lot of calories, you know, carbs, fat, protein, it'll just be that much more you could pack on. Um, I mean, unfortunately, you can't do studies on highly trained guys eating a lot of food and also taking massive doses of of androgens, which is what. You know, traditional bodybuilders do. But it, it just makes sense that just going into a caloric surplus and, you know, stacking uh, 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 different androgens would, have, uh, would increase the anabolic effect above and beyond just taking androgens. But, but certainly, if you don't like eating, and there's a lot of guys who just find eating kind of a pain in the butt, if you don't like eating, then just taking androgens by itself would certainly just have an anabolic effect without eating more calories.
1: Let me ask, this is another interesting topic, because many of these studies, and perhaps the study you did, you know, a lot of times people use whey protein for their source of protein. And one of the sort of thoughts around that is a very rapidly absorbed type of protein as compared to, say, if you ate it, you, know, you got your, your, your protein, something like a steak. Can you comment on how that, that may or may not impact our knowledge about how much, we, how much we can tolerate, how much we can eat? Is there a difference you know, that's going on with that?
2: Yeah, you know, it's a good question in terms of comparing, because all of my studies on protein overfeeding dealt with you're just consuming more whey, uh, whey protein. And mainly for convenience, it's easy to drink. It's also expensive to give subjects free steaks and chicken just because it's just you don't want to do that. Now, would there be a difference? I think two. Th- there's a few things to look at. One, if you're looking at total protein intake, over the course of a day, it may not matter. Uh, would it matter post-workout when, let's say post-workout, would count as one of your meals? Does it matter if it's, a, if it's a protein that's quickly absorbed like whey or is it something like, you know, if you ate just a piece of chicken, would it matter? If you're on a high protein diet, I tend to think it probably doesn't matter. If you're on a lower protein diet, meaning less than two grams per kilo, I think it might matter. Um, where you want to take advantage of all the different qualities that different protein sources have. But if you, to me, if you're over one gram per pound, now it's just an issue of just, now you're getting plenty of protein, so it, it won't even matter.
1: It's interesting that you called uh, below two, two grams per kilo low protein, because most people, you know, you, we see our recommendations, RDAs are 0.8 per yeah. kilo, which is, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, that's what we're being told <laughs> to eat, and, and some people even say that's too high. Some people are even down 0.5 or 0.4, you know, <laughs> and I just find that to be um, like you're doing laughable, but what, what are your comments on our, our, our RDA recommendations for protein?
2: You know, the, the RDAs is, is – well, and again, the caveat is I always reference – we're talking about exercising people, trained people, whether they're strength power athletes or endurance athletes. So that's the population I talk about. I don't, I don't I Frankly, I don't care what sedentary people do because it doesn't matter because they're not training. Now, even my own kids – I mean, my kids, I have twin daughters or freshmen in college. Even they know to get a gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo. And to me, that should be your baseline. Um, I think there's a couple reasons. One, if you're training, you need protein to recover. That's, that's number one, because let's say you don't care about gaining lean mass. You don't care about bodybuilding. You still need to recover from training, and the way to do that is from dietary protein. It's not from carbohydrates. Um, I mean, carbohydrates play a role because of glycogen repletion, but really, it's easy to replete glycogen. So that's one. Uh, number two, consuming protein in lieu of consuming carbs or fat probably results in better body composition in the long run unless you're an endurance athlete where you're just going to consume volume uh, you know a large volume of calories just because you spend so much so leaving that group aside everyone else would be better off just consuming more protein to maintain better body composition because let's face it most strength power athletes whether you're in track and field running the 100 to 200 the high jump the triple jump the shot put their energy expenditure is not that high. People, you know, people think they're exercising all the time, but they're not really burning that many calories. So you don't need that high a carb intake to replace the glycogen you use, but you do need the protein to help repair skeletal muscles. So, um, again, outside of the endurance athlete, I think most people don't need that high volume of carbs in general. I mean, in general.
1: Hey, Jose, you said, you know, it, it, maybe you can talk about maybe the mechanism behind this because you said protein is essential for recovery, can you define how that works?
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a few ways to look at it. One, you, skeletal muscle cells would, would undergo normal turnover just from you know, breaking down and building up. You, you repair new cells. The other thing is there's always exercise-induced damage. So you're going to damage skeletal muscle fibers every time you train. To repair that, you need to get that added protein um, to help repair it. The other way in terms of improving body composition is my data has shown that if you elevate protein intake high enough, it may not increase lean body mass. And again, these are in people who want to gain lean mass. It may not increase lean body mass, but it seems to promote a decrement in fat mass. And maybe the mechanism for that is threefold. One, we know the thermic effect of protein is high. Uh, Two, uh, In some people, I don't know about all, but in some people, it does seem to suppress appetite. So you may end up eating less calories throughout the day. And the third one is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So maybe you end up just burning more calories throughout the day. And what's interesting is I remember several of my subjects when I came to the lab for post-testing. I remember this one particular woman. She was was a tiny girl. She must have weighed 105 pounds. And she was consuming easily 4.4 grams per kilo. And she always said, she'd come in and she said, oh my God, I been, I'm constantly sweating. I'm constantly hot. I mean, basically, her body says, you know, I can't really store this. I'll use whatever I can for fuel, but I got to just burn it off. So in that case, it's very difficult to get fat overeating on protein. Whereas if we did an overfeeding study on, you know, cookies and cake, it's easy to get fat because that's easily stored as fat, whereas protein is, you just got to burn it and burn it and burn it because you can't store it.
0: Jose, I want to jump in here real quick and stay on the lines of protein, but kind of go back to what you touched on. Uh, you know, one thing I find really interesting is when I look at kind of my diet in terms of just the amount of energy I consume, and I look at a diet of, say, like a bodybuilder, we might have a fairly similar caloric intake, but there's, there's situations where we have like this bodybuilder or strength athlete who's almost twice as big as I am. And then they're consuming about the same amount as I am purely because of the amount of running I do. You know, I might have two or three times my resting metabolic rate if I do a big enough workout. Right. So what is the, what is your thoughts with protein within those two groups? So for like me, like if I just double what I was eating before that, given like a rest day or like a a sedentary lifestyle, I guess, is another way to look at it. Um, What what are the possible harms or possible benefits for me just saying, I'm going to keep my protein at this percentage, even though my energy requirements are going way up and get up into those like almost 300 gram levels at times?
2: Okay, you asked a lot of different questions there.
0: I <laughs> should have done one at a time, I guess.
2: <laughs> but, but here's it, what's interesting is when I look at uh, the continuum of endurance athletes and strength power athletes, um, I always emphasize this to strength power athletes that if you want to talk to athletes that damage their bodies from training, it's not strength power athletes, it's endurance athletes. And a lot of it is just related to training volume. If you're out there running or biking, well, probably more running than biking, but if you're out there running, biking, swimming, rowing or whatever for a long period of time, it just causes more skeletal muscle damage than, I mean, even the most dedicated strength power athletes are not lifting more than an hour. I mean, they're, and a lot of it is rest anyways. So in terms of just repairing skeletal muscle damage, it's, it's almost more important for you to get that protein than it is for them, because obviously they're getting it for different reasons. They want to maintain muscle mass or gain muscle mass. You just want to repair skeletal muscle because obviously you need it. You need it to train. You need it to race. Um, So in that case, what's interesting is you mentioned some of these bodybuilders are eating basically the same number of calories as you, but they're certainly moving a hell of a lot less than you. However, they're moving a larger body throughout the day, which still, you know, that burns calories. Whereas you're moving your smaller body, but expending a lot of energy just during training. So um, I'm not sure that answers your question, but, you know, it's funny when I give talks to endurance athletes, I try to, you know, I remind them that, you know, believe it or not, you're probably causing more skeletal muscle damage than the strength power athletes. And, and it's my way of sort of telling them, this is why eating more dietary protein is important for you. I mean, you're not a bodybuilder, but you want to repair muscle. Otherwise, how are you going to train?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, usually what happens is someone goes out and runs a marathon and they realize how much damage you get, actually do just running and, you know, find them like sliding down the stairs as opposed to walking down on the next couple days. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> hey, Jose, we had uh, a while back, we had Professor Stuart Phillips on. I, I, I imagine you're familiar with some of his work. And I know Donald yeah. Lehman is also another protein researcher. They've commented on when it comes to to, to actually building muscle, you know, myofibular my protein census or or you know muscle protein census, whatever you want to say, that protein is the you know, that's the driver of that. You know, insulin can be permissive, carbohydrates are not necessarily needed for that. However, carbohydrates do have a role in, in what you talked about was uh, restoring glycogen, it probably has a performance benefit Is that what your experience shows as well? It's it's basically down to protein, particularly things like leucine. And then the other thing I'd like to discuss is when you're eating high amounts of of protein, and we talked about the excess protein, you know, you got to deaminate the nitrogen, you've got to convert to ammonia, then then your liver converts it to urea, and then you get rid of it. But gluconeogenesis is also something that occurs in response to amino acids, or or can be, but it seems to be a demand-driven process and not not a supply-driven process. That is to say we aren't seeing runaway glucose levels and people consuming right. levels of, 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 uh, of protein. So can you comment on those two topics? One about the, the essentiality of protein rather than carbohydrates for muscle building and then gluconeogenesis a little bit.
2: Yeah. The first one, yeah, I, I agree with uh, uh, Layman and Phillips. Um, certainly if you look at the data, uh, protein protein by itself, especially the essential amino acids are the primary driver for skeletal muscle Uh, protein synthesis or myofibrillar protein synthesis um adding carbohydrates to that has a minimal effect if if any effect so so that's indeed true in terms of the second one yeah i think you're absolutely correct it's not really a a supply driven process i mean and you know it's weird i've heard the argument that if you're eating all that protein you're going to end up producing this large amount of glucose um yet we have measured in some of these guys that are consuming i mean gargantuan amounts of protein their plasma their resting plasma glucose is fine there's no evidence that there's this enormous glucose output from the from the protein they're consuming if anything i mean the, the quote excess protein would just be oxidized as fuel so um, so yeah i think i you know i think those two points are right on
1: yeah just back to your research on you know because you t- you said you did research on anabolic steroids and androgen i don't know if you got into the receptor much but i know that uh, professor Phillips' group again I think last year put out a study looking at uh, young resistance-trained athletes that were not taking exogenous androgen, but they found that the driving factor for muscle protein synthesis in that group was not necessarily the circulating hormone level, but rather the androgen receptor uh, density. Do you have anything, any comments on that particular study, or are you familiar with it?
2: No. Well, it's been a while since I – I'm familiar with that study, but it's been a while since I've looked at the details. Um, for my postdoc, for my postdoctoral research fellowship, I actually looked at the role of the androgen receptor and how it affected skeletal muscle growth. I, but I used a rat model. Um, now there is some similarity in terms of skeletal muscle between humans and rats, but what we do find is that having a higher—it's interesting—the more androgens you you um, you administer to an animal, and I assume this happens in humans too, the more the androgen receptor actually is responsive. And, and I think this explains sort of anecdotally why bodybuilders, they keep, they seem to keep growing. It's it, it's almost like there's no limit other than what they can pack on their skeleton, but the more androgen they take, the bigger they get it. There's no negative feedback. It seems it's a positive feedback group. It seems that the more you take, the more receptor you have, the more sensitized you are to it and, and the larger you get. So. um so, yeah, so for, from the animal data, it looks like you can increase AR content or androgen receptor content. Um, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I you know, the, the androgen or anabolic steroid field is, is fascinating. Unfortunately, it's hard to get those kinds of studies passed through the IRB in the United States. Um, um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, I just, I just noticed, that, you know, because that particular study was done in, you know, guys not consuming steroids. And, and clearly, I mean, you'd have to be an idiot to think that steroids don't put on muscle. I mean, you just kind of walk <laughs> into a bodybuilding contest. so yeah. But
2: exactly. in the
1: natural state, you know, guys that are not, not taking exogenous stuff, it might have more of a – more relevance there. Um, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, we have this – you know, this push for us to eat more plants and, and, and not, I mean, let's talk about sources of protein. Is there a difference between plant derived protein and animal derived protein sources? Yeah,
2: I think um, there's two ways to look at this. One, most people are eating what I would call lower protein diet. So that's less than two grams per kilo. That's how I define low. Other people don't, but that's how I define low. In that case, since that's what most people are doing, protein quality matters a lot more. And in that case, animal proteins are better than plant proteins. I mean, I don't, is that a, is that like controversial?
1: <laughs> it uh, I yeah. I mean, control. there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, I would call it propaganda out there that shows that you can get just as much or more protein from a, you know, a Bro- stick of broccoli <laughs> than you can from a steak. And I just laugh, but I mean, that's, that's out there and there's a lot of people that, that yeah. seem, to, seem to believe that.
2: That's a lot of broccoli you got to eat by the way. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, definitely, you know, there's de- a lot of data on milk-based proteins being much better than any plant-based protein. And I would suspect beef, chicken, pork, uh, and fish proteins are going to be better than any plant-based protein. So unless you're a vegan, uh, I, you know, eating a mixed diet of different kinds of protein, I think would be the, be the best option. And I actually think that if you were to choose a single protein as a food, I think fish protein might be the best one. You get protein too. You get some pretty damn good fat. So, um, there's a lot of people who hate fish (laughs) so i tell them to drink milk instead
1: (laughs) yeah i think the 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 fao is is kind of switching over to something called the uh dietary index for uh what is it called indispensable amino acids you know and and, and they're changing the way they measure that and 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 it shows when you look at that when they rack and stack the protein sources i think i think milk whey protein shows up highest and then it's you know the various animal proteins beef fish pork whatever eggs and then i think the the best plant protein was soy protein and then followed by all the rest of the stuff you know all the way down to like you know grains which would be very low yield and spinach and broccoli and stuff like that but it's uh they're shifting the way they're 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 you know examining or or evaluating protein and it even more falls in the favor of animal-based proteins which i think is interesting
2: yeah you know what's interesting because all these different uh, methods that aren't they're basically not looking at any meaning any clinically meaningful endpoints like such as body composition, the things that matter to us, body composition and, and performance. So that's you know that's how I look at it. You know, differentiating those protein sources I think would be difficult other than if you're just comparing animal versus plant protein. But once you get within the animal protein category, whether it's milk, eggs, beef or or fish, it's virtually impossible to find a clinically meaningful difference between them because over the course of a day, you're eating so much protein from so many different sources that it may not matter. Um, but it only matters or likely matters if it's animal versus plant. So, um, yeah, the, like uh, yeah, that measure you mentioned, the, uh, the other one that was used before PD I mean, biological value. I remember reading about this way back when as an undergrad and grad student and thinking, a lot of this sounds theoretical and nice, but at the end of the day, it I don't think they're meaningful at all. I mean, they're almost just kind of a waste.
0: Jose, one quick question on that stuff, too, is like, because I think it's like you said, we know that eating animal-based protein is going to be more efficient in, in the sense that, like, you're eating a complete protein source, whereas if you're relying on just vegetables for your protein source, you're going to have to eat, you know, maybe twice as much just to get the same the same amount, is there a big range or do we know if there's a big range between like individuals and how much plant protein they can tolerate uh, or how well their body takes it up? Like are there some people that are much more efficient at deriving those proteins or amino acids from plants and other people who have a really hard time with it? You know, that's a good question. I don't think, I'm not aware
2: of any data that's looked at that. I I think you would if I were to think I think about this and you know if I were to look at this as a study, what would I do? I think the challenge I would have would be getting subjects to eat enough of plant protein that it would be sufficient and I think it would be i think the problematic part would be getting enough volume of food if you're mm-hmm. just going to get it through plants and heck to me that would be harder than just drinking a bunch of protein shakes that are made of whey protein so I think it'd be a really tough study to do and i I don't know if anyone knows the answer to
1: that. I, I think a lot of folks, you know, they're, they're using, you know, plant-derived protein shakes, you know, the, the pea powders and and right. stuff like that to get around that. And I think that's how that successful bodybuilders that, that do it on a plant-based diet are, are, are sort of meeting those those requirements. Let me, you know, you said you're sort of to branch out into some of the, I guess, neurophysiology of protein or some of the other things. What, what sort of stuff do we need to know about that? Or is there something you can kind of li- li- teach us about?
2: Yeah, we're uh, I actually, in addition, as you well know, I, I run an academic nonprofit called the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Um, we've started a new one myself and a couple of my colleagues here, a Dr. Jamie Tarter. She's a neuroscientist. And Dr. Corey Peacock, he, he actually is an exercise scientist. He works with a lot of MMA athletes. Uh, we've started something called the Society for Neurosports. And basically, what we're trying to do is integrate neuroscience with exercise science. And what's interesting about this is, is there's actually a group of people that are interested in how exercise and or nutrition affects brain function. And it's a wide open field and no one's actually managed to put it together because everyone's sort of all over the place. You have these brain people who do sort of goofy exercise stuff. And then you have exercise people who don't really know shit about the brain, but they pretend they do. And they're all sort of, sort of talking past each other. Um, but there's a lot of cool data out there. I mean, you know, I tell people if there's one thing you can do to help your brain more than anything is just go work out. That's probably the single best thing for your brain. And then some of the data just on, on maybe uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, and even more exciting, the data on how creatine affects brain function is really fascinating. In fact, we're collaborating with um, a group of uh, psychology professors looking at the effects of creatine. And, and this, is, this is sort of a little different for me, but we're looking at the effects of creatine in untrained college students to see how it affects brain function. And you know, people say, well, God, that's the first time you've ever worked with untrained people. And I said, yeah, but think about this. There are many more untrained people than are trained people. That's number one. Number two, there's a lot of untrained college students, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> number three, if you can get untrained people to take creatine merely because it helps their brain, that's huge. I mean, because let's face it, I mean, what do college kids take? They probably take Adderall or some other wacky drug, right? (laughs) If we can get them taking creatine to help brain function, that would be a huge win. And then the fact that untrained people would take it would maybe diminish some of the stupid, stupid myths that surround creatine amongst those who are trained because there's still a lot of crazy things that are talked about when it comes to creatine supplementation, but its role in the brain, I think, is really interesting.
0: Jose, is there any efficacy for like a protein supplementation for someone like Sean, who's already eating four plus pounds of red meat a day?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Well, uh, I don't, you know, what? I don't think there is. I mean, I think he's here. And let me tell you a story on the side. We had a guy who uh, was eating about four to five grams uh, per kilo per day, and he decided to take part in one of our weight loss studies. I'm like, okay, well, you eat so much, it shouldn't be hard to cut your calories. But this is what's funny I'm like, basically, you just got to cut protein because you that's all you're eating. Basically, you know, you it's hard to cut everything else. What's funny is, he cut his calories down, he didn't, nothing happened. It was like his body was like, he kept all his muscle, he was already lean to begin with. I'm like, well, you don't really have much fat to lose, so he literally didn't lose anything. So, no matter how much he ate, how much protein he ate, or how much he dropped it it's as if his body was like sort of running, running on, on automatic. So like for Sean, you know, I don't know if eating more protein would help. I, you know, the experiment I would try is, could you ratchet it down? And would that affect body composition? I mean, I don't know. It might, might not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, and that's kind of an interesting anecdote because, you know, you, you know, we talk about the people, let's say that, you know, every calorie counts and yet there's a guy that's eating a lot of protein and then not as much protein. There's no difference whatsoever. And those, those are four gal four grams per calorie. So right. let me go back to this creatine thing. because so I think it's fascinating just in light of some of the anecdotal and again, I'll, I'll prefer this is all anecdotal stuff, but I do see people that are eating, you know, a meat based diet, which is clearly going to be higher in creatine. Uh, seeing again, anecdotally a lot of mental health improvements with regard to things like depression, anxiety, some people say cognition. Maybe maybe the creek because obviously there's creatine and red meat. I mean, it just be it's just kind of interesting how that lines up. I mean, do you do you think you know? And there's a lot of people out there. It's fascinating to me that I see a lot of people out there saying that there is no way that nutrition could impact things like depression or anxiety. And I'm like, how could it not? But I mean, yeah. that, that that's out there. And so, can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I... To me, that's like as silly as you know, proteins bad for your kidneys. It's, of course, nutrition can impact you know different cognitive functions, uh, uh, even even depression. I mean, there's, I mean, there is data on creatine affecting depression in women who take um, who take anti-depression, uh, depression medication. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense uh, that you know the foods you eat are going to impact not just basic physiology of skeletal muscle, but just basic neural physiology. Um, and exercise probably has the greatest impact on terms of brain function. Uh, I mean, it, it, I'm not—I don't understand the neuroscience and the psychology because that's not my background. I sort of understand enough to be kind of dangerous, but when I read some of these studies on neurophysiology as it applies to exercise, clearly exercising is helping whatever is going on in the head, whether it's improving memory or you know. You know, I even joke that it makes, seems to make you smarter, whatever the hell that means, you know? So, you know, apparently I need more exercise. So it's doing something profound. And the problem is in, in with human models, it's hard to get to mechanistic things, but we, we can at least get to clinical endpoints, you know, because let's face it, at the end of the day, we just want to know what a result is. We may not care what mechanistically why it's happening.
1: Yeah, I think that's I I like that sentiment because there's people out there that will say you know we we have to understand the mechanisms and and my my retort to that is basically they always change because we learn new stuff and so at the, at the end of the day what do we want to know we want how do I feel how do I perform how do I look talk about the the uh, importance of lean skeletal mass and lean muscle mass on just indices of health and age can you are you familiar with any of that stuff
2: yeah that's uh, what's interesting is um, you know i always tell my students uh, make sure you don't ever end up in a hospital because you'll be lay, you'll lay in bed you'll you'll waste away you'll atrophy um, and losing lean body mass is a predictor of you know mortality and morbidity you just don't want to lose lean mass uh, it's just something you want to keep as long as you can for as you know for as long, you know for as long as you can up in, into old age it's you know a lot of people don't look at it as an indicator of health you know the way you look at blood pressure, cholesterol, whatever. But let's face it, it is an indicator of health. You need—I mean, if you look at older people who don't train, they're stooped over, they're sarcopenic, they're osteopenic, and—and and, you know, I guess those kinds of disease processes are so slow that people don't—you so got to pay attention. Exercise training is one of the few things that will keep you at least somewhat young for as long as possible, and it will help you retain lean body mass. I mean, to me, that's just one of the critical things that you need to do with age um, is just maintain that lean mass. Now, I don't know how old you are, but I've been training. I'm 57. I've been training since I was 11, 10 or 11. I, I initially got into martial arts training, and then I realized getting my ass kicked was no fun, so I did other stuff. Um, but I've been training that long and I don't think I've ever skipped more than two weeks other than just cause I was sick. Um, and mainly get, people who work out, just, they just feel good and to me. That's enough. And, and feeling good obviously stems from, you know, what it does to your brain, but yeah, you got to maintain that lean body mass. Otherwise it's just downhill. It's just downhill.
1: Yeah. I've been, I've been, I've been training for a little around 40 years now. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 52. So let me, let me just. You talk about being sedentary, being laid up in the hospital. Is there any evidence that if you are put in that situation or just for a sedentary person in general, a higher protein diet could potentially help them to hang on some more of that, that muscle mass in, in, in the spite of, despite being sedentary?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I,
1: it's sort of like this. Uh, there's, there's, there's
2: trade-offs with anything. If you're sedentary, which is the worst thing you could be, at least if you get more protein than, let's say, carbs, I mean, because you don't, you don't really need that many carbs because you're not really moving. <laughs> you're just sitting there. If you can get more protein, I think it'll help body composition in general. And, and maybe not so much a large amount of lean body mass, but at least less fat mass. And having less fat mass at least will improve your body composition, but it would be very difficult to just have more lean mass from eating protein and not training
0: Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of HPO podcast is brought to you by a company named Fat Snacks. That's Fat Snacks with an X. Fat Snacks is a company that makes a cookie that is keto, low carb and high fat. They use ingredients like almond flour, coconut flour and butter to make a soft bake cookie with 1 to 2 net grams of carbs and 8 grams of fat per cookie. It comes in flavors such as chocolate chip, lemon and peanut butter. This, personally, is an option that I've used in the past when I'm traveling, when I'm in a situation where I might be busy and on the go for quite some time and just there's a scarcity of what I would consider high-quality food options. This is a great thing that's easy to pack and bring along and and get you out of a pinch in a situation like that. Uh, I also see this as a really great option for parents with children who want to send them to school, to practice, or to a friend's house and don't want them to overdo some of the more traditional options that are sugar and vegetable oil-based cookies. Uh, If you'd like to check out this product, please head over to their website at fatsnacks.com, and with the promo code HPO, you can get 5% off your first single order or 10% off a subscription order. Also, if you get a chance, head over to Instagram and Facebook and give them a follow or a shout-out at Snacks. And let them know that HPO is very grateful for their support. Now back to the show.
1: Let me ask you, you know, there's a lot of you know, as you, you mentioned, it's difficult to do some of these studies, particularly these long-term studies. Often it's, you know, cheap cheap college kids because they're 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 a dime a dozen, you can get them. Right. <laughs> do you know if any of these studies have been done with regard to protein requirements, protein overfeeding? with variations in, in the carbohydrate content, do we have a lot of image, uh, knowledge to know how much carbohydrates impact that sort of stuff? Have we ever done studies like we're going to compare high protein and low carb versus high protein and high carb? Has that been done?
2: Um, not in terms of overfeeding. I mean, obviously there's a lot of diet data you know, where they cut calories and they keep protein the same, but not necessarily higher protein and playing with the carb ratio. Because I think, I mean, I've actually thought of that. And then I said to myself, no, I'm not doing it. (laughs) And, and here's why it's, uh, in a lot of my studies, I'd say I get probably 20 to 25% dropouts, um, particularly with the high protein feeding stuff. And mainly because subjects say, you know what, I just don't want to eat this much. I'm just sick of eating. I can't drink all these shakes. I can't eat all this chicken, which sounds funny to most people like, wow, you're, you're sick of eating. It's like, yeah, when you have to eat that much protein, it becomes a job. So, I had thought, okay, what if I keep everyone on a high-protein diet and just manipulate carbs and fat? Uh, and after thinking about it and talking to mostly bodybuilders, because they're probably the best ones at manipulating the macronutrient ratio, it just became logistically difficult because a lot of these guys, and they're mostly guys, don't want to change. They would say, well, this is working for me, you know, whether it's higher protein, higher carb, or higher protein, higher fat. And they, you know, they're like, so you want me to do this for eight weeks? What if it's worse? I'm like, well, if it's worse, it's worse. <laughs> they're like, well, no, I don't want to take that chance because if it's worse, then then I'm not going to like you. So so it's, it's, here's the thing. You almost have to do it in people who are sedentary. But then, you know, I would go back to, well, who cares what it does to sedentary people? We care about what it does to train people. So, you know, you sort of go back and forth and I would think you'd have to pay guys a lot or girls a lot of money to change their diet, knowing that maybe it's not ideal for them. And so, so to me, that's why my studies are simple. You're just going to eat a lot more protein, and here's the shakes: do three or four a day, and eat the rest the way you normally eat.
1: Yeah, I mean, I made that comment because there's some thought out there that you know, by reducing carbohydrate, it may allow you to eat more protein. You know, and, and but I, I don't know if there's any. Like I said, any. Scientific literature to, to back that 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 sort of hypothesis up, right? What um you know as far as uh you know when you talk about moving and training, is there any compelling evidence to to direct us on how we should do that? I mean, should we all should we all be lifting weights? Should we all be doing running running marathons? I mean, wh- wh- where does it what does the uh, literature tell us?
2: Um,
1: I. You know,
2: it's a great question because oftentimes I'll phrase phrase this to friends of mine who I'd say the majority of them, I'd say 75% of them focus more on strength power stuff and then the other 25 focus more on endurance stuff. And when I phrase the question, how would you eat or train if your goal was to live long, what's interesting is most of the strength power stuff people tend to gravitate to what more endurance people do if the goal is just to live long, Okay the goals look pretty, you know, the strength, power, people are like, well, you know, I'll lift weights, eat protein, you know, you know, and just have a pretty body. Um, so it really depends. It really depends how it's framed to me because most people don't exercise. They got to do something, whatever they do, do it regularly. Um, from a, if you're not a competitive athlete, if I tell people, if you're not making money off exercise and training, one, do something you like Two. It would be good to do a little bit of both, whether it's cardio, whether it's traditional aerobic training, whether it's HIT training, steady-state cardio, and/or uh, some sort of heavy resistance training. Now, not many people do that because they tend to gravitate towards one or the other. Um, but if you know, if I were to give advice, that would be it. Even myself, you know, I was—I uh, used to, man, I used to love going to the gym. I probably from the time I was in college to let's see, till I was. 40. Um, and then to be honest, I just kind of got bored. I'm like, eh, I don't want to go to the gym anymore. And besides I live in Florida, it's nice outside. So honestly, the only thing I do now is I, I do a lot of stand up paddling. I, I compete in races around Florida and, and it's what I do. And it's kind of a weird exercise, but I do it regularly and I try to bust my ass while I'm out there. So y- you got to find what you like and just do it a lot. I mean, and do it hard, but you got to do it hard. You can't do it easy. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that sentiment. You know, we, we often hear, you know, as physicians, you know, just tell your patients to walk. And I think, you know, that that is for the basic most sedentary person <laughs> on the planet. Go walk a little bit, but be, you've got to progress beyond that. And I, I do like to see the intensity. Talk to me if you can. There is, I'm going to make a statement. mTOR Stimulation of mTOR is bad because it causes cancer and, and shortens your lifespan. What are your thoughts are when you hear that that sort of being talked about?
2: I hear that. You know what's interesting? I hear that a lot. So, to me, I look at this. There's a series of trade-offs. Um, so, mTOR causes stimulation to tumor cells, right? I mean, but then, you, but then, eating protein stimulates mTOR, which you need for maintaining skeletal muscle mass. So, when you're looking in, can- let's look at cancer. So, cancer is this multifactorial disease, which is caused by a whole host of things. There are various things you could do to decrease the risk of it. Of which the most important thing is exercise. So, if you exercise. You're decreasing risk. Eating certain foods might decrease risk, whether it's drinking coffee or um, or just eating or, or eliminating processed food. So we can decrease the risk that way. On the other side, you don't want to lose skeletal muscle mass with age, because remember, keeping lean body mass is critical just for general health. So to maintain lean body mass, you got to make sure protein intake is high enough to do that. So I think the question is, as you get older, you know, how much protein do you need? to maintain the lean body mass you have without perhaps stimulating mTOR so much that it might promote tumor development. But to me, it's kind of a weird question because people who exercise are automatically shifting their risk downward quite a bit. Um, Also, people who exercise tend to not be fat. People who exercise tend not to smoke. People who exercise tend to have low risk factors in general when it comes to the incidence of cancer. So to me, the trade-off is simple. You work out like crazy, consume enough protein so you don't lose so you do not only muscle mass, but you don't lose bone mass. And I failed to mention that, but you certainly want to keep bone mass. Um, and then the issues related to cancer to me are you can control a lot of that other stuff. You can control smoking. You can control how active you are. You can control body weight. So I side on the fact that maintenance of lean mass is critical because if you can't physically function, who the hell cares? I mean, if you're decrepit and you can't move, you're worried about mTOR. I think you should worry about moving.
1: <laughs> we had uh, professor Ben Bickman on, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but, he, but we, we, we posed that question to him too. And his, his answer was, yes, protein can stimulate mTOR. And, and the same sort of answer as you, but then he also added the fact that actually insulin stimulates mTOR even more than protein does. And so if you're really worried about that, you know keep your insulin level low which goes to lean body composition and all those types of things which i think uh you know is kind of an interesting take on that you know And,
2: and it also you know it's funny and this is where it gets really tricky it also goes to the particularly when you look at all these all the animal studies on general chronic caloric restriction promoting longevity i mean the the animal data is 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 quite robust it's like you go across species it's like why do you calorically restrict these animals live longer the the problem i have with that data you know people say well then humans should just eat less and they'll live longer i said well, yeah but you'll be miserable but you no know, when i get semi-serious i say if you look at a lot of the animal data and i've i did i used animal models a lot when i was a grad student so if if, if you see how these animals are housed they're housed in sterile super clean conditions i mean and they're on a 12-hour light-dark cycle. Everything is controlled. They're not, they're not subject to viruses and bacteria that humans are, you know, when we're walking around outside. So you can't compare what an animal is subjected to in a clean, sterile environment to what humans are subject to do just when they walk outside, shake hands, sit in an airplane, go on a crowded bus. We're subjected to all these environmental insults, uh, viruses and bacteria, that if you eat less, <laughs> how are you ever going to recover from getting sick? You know, and maybe just eating less alone will make you more susceptible to, all, to, to, to getting sick or ill. So to me, the chronic, uh, the, the caloric restriction data, the chronic, uh, you know, where they restrict it chronically is kind of interesting. Um, but I don't know if it applies to humans because we can't live in a controlled environment
1: one of the one of the interesting things i've noticed about it because I, obviously i'm pursuing this crazy carnivorous stuff and i was trying to find data in carnivorous animals which, which were calorically restricted and there's none i mean the only data out there is like on dogs that were eating dog chow which is it's not their normal right. food it's not their protein and so we don't right. i don't think we have data in that but I, I like your comment on the bone you know as an orthopedic guy i think it's important and what are your comments on protein and bone health i mean I, we always hear about calcium and vitamin d but in my view, and, I, and maybe maybe perhaps you share this, protein is probably equally or more so uh, for maintaining bone integrity. Do you, have, do you have any thoughts on protein and bone health?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's, it's – uh, the role of protein, I think, is secondary to the role of exercise. We've, uh, we've dexed probably two 300 athletes um, in the last two years, and it's interesting. The guys and girls who have the highest bone mineral density, well, the guys tend to be fighters or football players. What do they have in common? It's impact, impact, impact. Um, We had a girl who played soccer. Obviously, there's a little bit of impact there whose bone density was super high as well. The athletes clearly with the lowest bone mineral density are swimmers. Why? Because there's no impact to swimming. Um, A lot of them are already consuming a pretty good diet. So I think the role of exercise is much more important than the role of diet. But again, this population is weird because their diet is good already. Now, let's say this was your typical population. You're walking to Target or Walmart, sedentary person. Because they're not exercising, I think diet probably plays a more critical role. Um, but that's still, that's why I always harken back to, well, what's the best thing you could do? Well, the best thing you choose is exercise. There's nothing better than that, particularly high-impact exercise. Now, most of us can't play football. We can't fight. We'd be kind of goofy. So what do you do? The best thing to do is you run, you lift. You run, you lift. Or something that's impact. And, and for lower extremity, running is probably more impactful than lifting because you're not lifting that long. And for the upper extremity, probably, you know, lifting would be the most impactful thing you can do. So, but I think for a trained population, exercise supersedes everything. For an untrained population, I think getting your diet dialed in is probably more critical.
1: Yeah. I mean, I lo- I really love the message about the exercise. Cause I-, I think there's, you know, there's this sort of, uh, you know, this thought that you can't outrun a bad diet and, you know, that, that there's kind of a pushback on that, that exercise doesn't do much for weight loss. You know, that's debatable, but I, I do think that the, the, the effects of exercise are, are just tremendous and, you know, we, we should all be doing it regardless of where we start, you know, whether right. it's you're the couch potato that hasn't walked more than, you know, to the refrigerator in 10 years you got to start somewhere and you got to progress. And I think that's, exactly. that information could out more. Zach, any, any more comments from you, Zach? Yeah, I just had
0: one other question. I want to kind of stay along the performance line, but uh, go away from protein for a minute here and look at kind of carbs and fats and, um, and selfishly maybe look at some endurance athletes. But uh, <laughs> my, my question basically is just like, where do you fall on like the role of carbohydrates within like high performing endurance sports? Okay. Um, as someone, as one of the few people in my
2: cat, in, you know, amongst my group that actually races does endurance racing, but my endurance is not the way you do it. I mean, the, the typical races I compete in are three to six to maybe 12 miles. These are uh, paddling races. Mm-hmm. They last anywhere from 36 minutes to maybe up to three hours. So for that group, uh, you know, less than a couple hours, I think, um, because the intensity is high, Uh, I stress carbon take uh, during the event. In fact, I suck down sugar like crazy during a race. It keeps mainly to keep my brain awake um, because my brain, the first thing that goes on me is my central nervous system. I get tired. If you're doing an ultra-endurance event, this is where it gets tricky because there's really no data on it. It's almost as if each athlete has to experiment what works for them. Um, there is a comparable to what you do. There is a 300 mile three day paddling race that I know some people are going to do. So what is it? It's basically your central nervous system has to be awake. Intensity is not that high, but you got to do something for literally all day and then you sleep, then you wake up you do it all day. Then you sleep and then you wake up. So how do you keep the central nervous system awake? Everyone. And I always tell this in training, experiment with a lot of different things. Um, do you need sugar per se uh, or maybe just eat food? Again, it's something you got to play around with. Um you could probably oxidize fat throughout and use that as your primary fuel and you're not certainly you never run out of fat. Should you teach your body just to use fat as fuel? Maybe. Again, but these are things you should try in training, not obviously during a race. So um So for me, whenever I talk to the few ultra endurance people, it's I see what they like to do and try to figure out if there's a way to, if there's a diet strategy based on what they like to consume, that will help propel them for as long as they're doing the event. Um, Because the date, there's just no data on ultra endurance people. There's just none.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm, I follow the similar route when I'm working with people and for myself as well. And, you know, the other thing I always consider too is, you know, what is your capacity to eat during one of these events? Cause that seems to range a lot from person to person. I'll talk to folks who can seemingly be eating an entire hundred mile race and not have any digestive issues. You might talk to someone yeah. else who's got all the natural talent on the running side, but they just struggle to take in anything more than maybe like one gel pack, which is about a hundred calories right. per hour. And it's <laughs> yeah, like for, it's yeah, for me, it's like if, if you can't eat more than 100, 200 calories an hour, we need to find a plan for you that allows you to get from mile one to mile 100 or whatever the race may be uh, with not having to eat more than that. And that usually skews more towards bad adaptation. And, you know, the other thing I've noticed a lot with my own training and racing too is uh, it just seems like to me, at least in the ultra endurance world, we kind of looked at carbohydrates and said, if a little bit is good, more must be better and got ourselves all the way up to a very, very high carbohydrate diet. And from my experience, I can ratchet my carbs down pretty low, even in my highest training weeks uh, and still hit the workouts at the paces I was doing when I was still high carb. And you know, for, for me, that tends to be when I'm in peak training, which might be upwards of 20 hours a week, I might let my car- carbs flex up to almost 20%. There may be a handful of days during the year where I get up to 30%, but fat's always the primary macronutrient. And then protein more or less stays pretty pretty stable throughout that whole. And, and that's kind of the template I've used with other folks I've worked with. And it's, it seems to work well, and it seems to be something, too, that you have to really weigh a lot of context on. Because, like, as you can imagine, you know, there's days where I'm sitting around doing nothing because I'm recovering from a big effort, whether that be a race or a big training block. You know, those days I don't really need to be – hitting that high octane fuel source, you know, I right. can do just fine eating fats and proteins all day. And, and I actually find like my mobility stays a lot better when I do that. Like if I finish a big effort and just pound carbohydrates, getting out of bed the next morning, you're just stiff, waddling around like to do an air squat or something like that would just seem <laughs> like like legitimate torture. But right. when I, when I finish that big event, if I know like I don't have to go back out and do anything intense for a few days, I have no use for carbohydrates i'll get out of bed and you know i can do an air squat you know i might be a little sore it might be a little mm-hmm. tight but not n- nearly to the same degree
2: yeah and i think what we should i think uh, something that we should mention to the audience in terms of context and nuance is people who don't do endurance sports don't realize that there's it runs the gamut of running the 1500 or the mile on mm-hmm. track all the way to doing a 100 mile race so the way a miler trains versus the 5,000-meter runner, 10,000-meter runner, even the marathon runner is training a lot differently than you are. So you mm-hmm. have such a wide range, and yet for people who, don't, who aren't familiar with endurance stuff, they sort of lump it all together, and it's, they're, they're just not lumpable together because they're really quite different.
0: Yeah, context is everything. And, like, you know, I think I, – I, I do wonder about the marathon and below crowd. Uh, I, you know, I think when, you, when we're talking, like, Olympic athletes at the – Fifteen hundred a marathon. I don't imagine we'll see any zero carb athletes doing that in the in, in the near yeah. future. And and that's where I sympathize with the folks who are skewing towards carbohydrates. But I can't help but wonder in some circumstances it wouldn't be possible to do at least a flexible setup where you know, even 1500 meter runners, they're doing a good bit of aerobic work, especially early in the season and uh, on recovery days and stuff. If there'd be a way to kind of set something up where they're getting their carbs at least lower than what they've done historically and still see the same, same results. And if that would maybe even catch some people that fall off the wagon in in sport, uh, you know, that's just suspicions of mine, but you know, it's, it's fun to kind of think about. Oh
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, with, when, you deal, when you're dealing with high-end athletes, it, I mean, each person, they're going to respond slightly differently to everything. And, mm-hmm. and to me, where you manipulate a lot of these dietary var- variables is during training because mm-hmm. you, you literally have months and weeks to do it. So, you know, uh, in the endurance world, particularly with, you know, the, the shorter mileages, when you look at some of the issues of, you know, whether it's uh, uh, you do a training run or training bike or training swim, And you go to bed, um, you know, carb depleted on a low carb day. You wake up, you train again. So you're training in somewhat fasted state, but teaching your body to oxidize fat better. Um, They're also doing something differently. And uh, I mean, Even in the endurance realm, if you look at the world-class athletes, you know, the 1,500 to, let's say, the 10,000, it's dominated by one group, and that's Mm Kenyans. So it's not like they're doing anything. I mean, everyone trains hard. I mean, they're actually on a high-carb diet, but even then, it's like they're dominating. And so, you know, maybe it's genetics. Uh, Who knows? Maybe they train harder. Maybe, they're, you know, nobody knows. So, um, I mean, a lot of this stuff is fun to talk about because it's like, hey, how can we manipulate someone to perform their best? And there's just so many factors, as you know, that go into that sort of high-level performance, you know. But that's what makes science fun. We, we talk about and we bullshit about this stuff.
1: <laughs> hey, Jose, let me, let me just bring it back to – selfishly bring it back to muscle building because I'm not going <laughs> to run 100 miles anytime soon. But, um, you know, is there – I don't did – did any of your research get into some of the actual uh, – besides nutrition, some of the, some of the, the actual training physiology, like – you know, we, we hear that a certain rep range, you know, training at lighter weights, higher reps, stimulates different things. And then, you know, lower reps do different things. There's different athletes will, will, will utilize like Olympic lifters, do a lot of doubles and triples, whereas bodybuilders might train in a higher range. And I, you know, what I've seen is it, it, it all seems to work, uh, you know, <laughs> provided you're at least something like 40% of your one rep max. Is there any insight in, into that sort of stuff that you, that you learned over the years? Yeah, I
2: think uh, I think we gotta separate performance athletes and bodybuilders. Um when it comes to bodybuilding or physique, seems like a little seems like a lot of stuff works, whether it's you know, uh uh high reps, high uh high volume, low reps, low volume. Um it all seems to promote muscle hypertrophy in some sense or another. Um even when you look at long distance cyclists, I mean for endurance people, they do have hypertrophy of their quadriceps and, and their and their hamstrings. So there's a certain amount of tension you need to generate to get hypertrophy. Now, if you separate out bodybuilders and just look at performance athletes, if you look at Olympic weightlifters, um, doing high reps would be a complete waste of time. I mean, it just one you don't want to do high reps doing snatches or cleans or whatever. You got to keep it low rep because it's it's highly technical. Even powerlifting, um, I don't know if it makes sense to do high reps of anything. Um, um, yeah. So when you separate those out, I think bodybuilding is kind of weird because a lot of things work. Training for performance is much more – I think you got to be much more exact. And, and I think um, the challenge that people in sports nutrition science have or, or the way I view it is that too many of them come purely from a bodybuilding perspective and they forget that there's a lot of people out there who train, who actually are interested in strength and power, but they're not training for bodybuilding. They're actually training to perform a sport, whether it's you're an O lineman in football, whether you're shot put, whether you're a discus, they're not training to just be larger because there's, there's nothing inherently better per se about being larger, particularly if you're in a weight class sport. Imagine you're an Olympic weightlifter and you're, you're in the smaller weight class. You can't afford just to be larger, to get stronger. You actually just got to get stronger, you know, through something else, neural drive, skill, et cetera. So, as long as you separate the two, bodybuilding and performance, I think, you know, then it starts to make more sense.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a nice lens to look at that because I, there are so many people that, you know, kind of, that don't do either. You know, they're just a, they're kind of the, the generic guy that's going to the gym and, and everything is viewed through the bodybuilding lens. And when you try right. to say, I'm doing something to perform a sport, which, yeah, you know, which requires exactly. a different set of variables besides just how, much, how big my biceps are. Right. So I think it's, it's, it's very nice to, to hear that, you know, sentiment. Yeah. And I don't think it's controversial at all. I think most people that, that do this stuff understand that, that, uh, you know, you're not gonna, you're not going to snatch, you know, 250 kilo <laughs> or 200 kilos by doing sets of 20. I mean, this is not going to happen. And, <laughs> 20s. You know,
2: hey, you know what? I, I've, well, you know what? I've seen people, um, I've seen these crossfit videos of people doing high, high rep snatches, which kind of astounds me. I'm like, wow
1: that's a good way to get injured. Um, cause it's such a technical lift. I mean, you got to do it perfectly. Yeah. I think that, that is certainly one of the knocks on CrossFit. I think, you know, I, I, am not opposed to doing that for fitness and conditioning, but there are better exercises you can choose than the snatch. Right. Exactly. You get on a rowing machine or an airline bike and, and, and kill yourself condition wise. Yep. That's how yeah. I, that's how I patterned my training. Well, Jose, I, I, you know, I don't know. Is there anything you want to talk about we didn't get to talk about? I, I, don't want, to, I want to be respectful for your time, and, and I'm not in a hurry to go anywhere, but you know, I just don't want to – I know you're a busy guy and stuff.
2: Well, I want to I tell you uh, some of the things that are going on for people who follow sports nutrition. Um, the International Society of Sports Nutrition, our, seven, our 16th annual conference is in Las Vegas, June 13th, 15th, so I want to let your audience know about that. Also, we're in the midst of – we're in the middle of a study. We're actually in the middle of two studies, one that you might find interesting. We're looking at the FTO gene, the fat mass and obesity-associated gene. Um, There's a single nucleotide polymorphism, or SNP, where there's a substitution of one one nucleotide for another that seems to confer an increased risk for getting fat, you know, increasing fat mass. And um, we did a four-week weight loss study. We had people cut calories by 20%. And we wanted to see if the group that carried the risky gene had a different effect in terms of fat mass loss versus the group that was the normal risk. Um, We found that there was no difference, which is actually kind of cool. Here's why. People are like, oh, so I have the risky gene. I'm predisposed to getting fat. Well, here's what it means. It means one, if you purposely cut calories, you will lose fat. We all know that. Now, I always say anyone could do a, a, weight, a weight loss cut for four weeks. Anyone can probably do that for eight weeks, maybe even 12 weeks. But probably it's problematic when you do it for a year, two years, or three years. And that's where some of these genetic influences probably play a bigger role. Because now, you know, in terms of satiety, these people don't get satiated as much as those who are normal risk. Uh, but in the end, it still tells you one thing. If you cut calories, you still will lose body fat. Because um, so that was kind of interesting. And these are trained people. These are not fat people. These are exercise-trained people. So if you lose, you know, they all lost about one to two kilos of fat mass, which, you know, after four weeks of cutting calories, that's pretty cool. So we're going to present that data. And the other thing we're doing you might find interesting, it's more uh, it's related to brain health, is we're looking at different contact sport athletes, uh, football players, fighters, soccer players, to see – if we can find a biomarker in their blood or even in their saliva, uh, that would be a predictor of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So um, we're hoping the three groups, athletes, soccer, fighting, and football, those are probably the three groups that would be most problematic. We're in the middle of collecting that data, and hopefully we'll have enough to present at the ISSN conference in Las Vegas on June uh, 13 and 15. So we got a lot of cool stuff going on. That's just two of the more fun things we're doing. So, uh, but, yeah, we, we have, we're always busy over here
1: uh, in our lab. I mean, that's, that's some interesting stuff. I wonder, you know, that the SNP you talked about for the fat loss or, or resistance to fat loss or whatever, how, how prevalent is that in, in, in the population? Do it, we know?
2: Good question. Um, we found Well, in, in the population of athletes that we've tested, we've gotten through about 150 people. It's carrying the risky gene is in about two-thirds of the population
1: <laughs> well that means yes. a
2: normal gene it, 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 well in a way it makes sense because it's sort of what you want um i mean if you know if, if, if a meteor hits the earth and all of a sudden you know we're like forging for our food you know you want to be the person who wants to keep eating you know so that you store fat I want um, that mobile aid station yeah, exactly <laughs> you know so it it's kind of weird i'm it as I look through the data, I'm always looking for people who don't, who are at normal risk. And it's like, Holy smokes. Most people actually are at higher risk for obesity. It's just kind of, and these are people who work out. These are not fat people. These are lean people, lean men and women. So it's just like, wow, it just strikes me. Like clearly there's an evolutionary adaptation here where it's more, it's a, it's a bit bigger advantage to not feel satiated so that it forces you to eat more. And by forcing you to eat more, you can store more energy. So but yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's the rare individual that is no you know, normal risk. It's like most individuals have higher risk, and it's
1: it's really cool. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's kind of you know you wonder because we're in a we're in a, an environment that you know we've got access to unlimited calories, and, and that yes. doesn't work too well with with. So it doesn't it, it doesn't surprise us that we see that we have so much obesity around and 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy and whatever. The exactly, yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, in our genes, so to speak, to be, <laughs> to be fat in this environment. Um, well, great. It was wonderful talking to you. I mean, like I said, I'm going to continue to quote your studies. It's when, when convenient for me because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm beating the protein drum pretty hard and saying it's crazy to not eat enough. And I think that's – I think most of – you know I would say on average, the average person doesn't eat enough protein you know it's a rare it's a rare person eats too much and and, and arguably that doesn't even exist and I think that yeah
2: and, and you know what I agree with you um but what's fascinating is i I get a lot of uh, uh, not criticism but um, people look at me like uh, why why i mean why do you think that and and it, there's just so many reasons why, particularly for exercise-trained people, why you need to eat at least, you know, 2.2 grams per kilo. And But even people in my field, in sports science, more but more the clinical nutrition side, they can't believe that I recommend this amount. And I tell them, this is what I had my kids doing when they were little. I'm like, I wanted them to eat all this protein. Um, and, and what's funny is now they recognize it and they, you know, they comment on how some of their friends, you know, they barely touch protein because they were told it's bad for you. And I'm like, I, I don't know where people make this stuff up. It's just amazing. People, like, people just make stuff up. But I guess that's why this field is interesting because you're dealing with people who just make stuff up. It's like a lot of flat earthers when it comes to protein.
1: <laughs> 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 well, that's, I mean, that's great stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I shake my head at some of that stuff too. I mean, you know, you wonder again, like you said, back from an evolutionary lens, protein would have probably been, you know, relatively easy to get compared to other nutrients back then. You know, if you're eating animals, yeah. and now we don't eat, you know, we eat everything else. That's right. <laughs> we go hunting for that soy
2: protein isolate. So
1: exactly. <laughs> All right, Jose, well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Like I said, we'll get this up. Zach, Zach, Zach's our technical wizard here, so he'll have cool. it. Up yeah you know, so we'll let you know when it comes out and uh, Do you, you post
2: know. it on uh Twitter and Instagram yeah, we'll, we'll and
1: Facebook? Yeah. yeah, we'll put a Twitter and an Instagram and YouTube and it'll go to all the all the different podcast sites and you know it'll, it'll get you know, you know, ten thousand plus people listen to it and maybe okay. hopefully and,
2: yeah, know. when you do that, just notify me and then I could repost it Perfect. as well. Cool. So awesome. Thank all right.
1: You. Will do. Thanks for coming on, Jose.
0: It's been great.
2: Hey, thank you. Appreciate it, guys. You have Take a care. great day. All right, bye bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.